Hi, my name is Youngnan Kim, and I go by they and she. And I'm currently teaching a course entitled Queer Trans Digital. And I've been, I've been teaching this course uh, over the last three years along with the community engagement class where uh, I bring the students to the community to offer media education, uh, mostly for young people. Okay, oh, that's great. For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, we're joined by Professor Young Ron Kim to discuss gender studies, interdisciplinary art, film, and more. Before we start, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. This is your way to leave a positive mark on the show and help us continue to find our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu slash library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation with one of our research librarians or using our sewing machine or 3D printer. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for joining us. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. So, and a lot of this I took from your faculty page on the website. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're an interdisciplinary artist and researcher. What exactly does that mean? Okay, so uh, I'm a researcher in a traditional sense that I write and publish papers. And uh, I'm also an artist because uh, I create performance pieces, mostly uh, via multimedia. So it's a site for me to uh, collaborate with uh, different groups of people like dancers, musicians, filmmakers, and poets. So uh, I combine these methodologies in my research because uh, I write about uh, films, performance arts, uh, theater, and film, but it's not limited to like uh, producing like written words. Uh, I do uh, experiment with what kind of uh, effect that these multimedia engagement generates through my practice as well. So it's like hands in hands. Uh, some people say that it's like having like two jobs, but uh, I uh, enjoy that a lot. And especially with the position that I have at Sarah Lawrence College, which is a digital media fellow, I do a lot of practices. I create videos, photography, and sound pieces with the members of the community and also with the students. That's so, great. Yeah. That's great. Um, so Stanley Kubrick said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, that an artist falls in love with the material they use, the literal material itself. Uh, They look at paint on a palette and it pleases them, or the smell of film pleases them. These tactile aspects of the art. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, it's a tricky question when uh, it comes to the digital. You know, like we don't have a smell of a movie file. Yes. (laughs) We may have some smells from the computer or the cameras. 
So some people, you know, uh, might argue that digital is so intangible, and uh, we don't we don't really uh, feel the materiality uh, from it. But uh, I do not necessarily agree with that because digital culture also uh, comes from our uh, analog culture, and there are many of the remains that we still have. For example, like if you look at your computer, there is an icon that has the disk. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's so funny. Yeah. I know these kids uh, can, today are not I don't think the college students recognize that no, icon anymore. The floppy, the floppy disk. Yeah, yeah. but the you know, materiality of the uh, media culture mm -hmm. is uh, also at the center of my question because I'm really interested in like how we can create communities out of the digital media practice. Mm -hmm. So uh, that means uh, we need to uh, look at the infrastructure and the materiality of our living conditions. So, uh, for example, if we do like community engagement project in Yonkers, we don't just show up <laughs> in the community and say that, oh, we can teach you this. It doesn't work that way. We have to look at like where we are, like the college is located both in Yonkers and Bronxville, but what is really the physical uh, infrastructure that we are dealing with when, we, when it comes to a community engagement project? We have to look at the history of the highways. We have to look at the history of the real estate planning. And we have to look at how uh, we can still uh, work together across these different neighborhoods as a, as a college, you know, as a hub of education. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it requires me a lot of um, uh, research and historical engagement with the material conditions that we live uh, in order to, you know, uh, create and offer the uh, community uh, engagement program successfully. Well, your answer raises an interesting idea, and it's that digital art is art. I, I, I know there's probably some people who still want to have that argument, but I feel like the argument has swayed to, no, it is art. It is expressing oneself no different than one does with a song or a film or a novel or poetry. Um, but it doesn't have that material component. But is that even necessary for the human spirit? to not still be moved by digital art. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I see, I've seen digital art and I've been moved. Uh, the, the fact that I can't really touch it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily hinder the experience. Does that, yeah. make, does that make sense? Yeah, of course, of course. And that's, uh, that's particularly the reason why I engage in the digital art, because it still t touches uh, people's minds with uh, its uh, creative essence. And also it's very accessible and that's why it's useful for the community engagement. Mm -hmm. So uh, we don't want to like bring like films, heavy films and all of those equipment uh, uh, to uh, the people. When we, what, when what we are really interested in is about creating content that speak to uh, our experience. Mm -hmm. So I care less about the you know professionalism or the material uh, like you know it requires a lot of trainings and before I put my hands on you know those uh, training aspect I would like to introduce how art can help us express our selves and also uh, tell stories about our communities that's what I am prioritizing uh, in my practice and in that regard digital media is really uh, relevant. Uh, method for me because you know 
kids come back with uh, video footages that they took with their phone, mm -hmm. and we edit and we make films. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really, in a way, a very uh, raw uh, experience that we can carry with the digital media. So um, yeah, that's that's what I'm fascinated by. Uh, yeah, the accessibility of it. So you are a member of the Urban Misfits. Mm. Uh, a performance artist collective based in New York City. If I went to a performance or event by the mis by the Urban Misfits, what am I likely to see and hear? Okay, so we were here at the college like five years ago, um, and uh, we presented our work um, called Ecstatic Corona. And that was a multimedia performance piece uh, that uh, we created out of our ethnographic uh, engagement in the neighborhood called Corona. It's in Queens. So it's a historically uh, immigrant neighborhood and a lot of members were from that neighborhood, like grew up uh, in Corona. And so uh, we did a lot of uh, walkings uh, in the neighborhood, recording sounds and taking pictures and videos. And then after all of these walks, I think we walked like 10 days or something like that. And then uh, we were all working in different mediums. So for me, it was mostly video and sound. And for other members, it was choreography. They prefer to call it as moving than dancing, bodily movements. And uh, also we, had, we have members uh, who sing and who writes uh, poems. And so uh, this performance piece uh, brings every element together. So uh, there is a projection uh, of the video that I took, of course, also edited, um, uh, in the, uh, uh, behind of the movers and the musician. And then uh, I trigger sounds. I use the mixing board so that I can trigger sounds at the right moment. And so I trigger the sound, and the video comes up, and uh, other performers uh, appear on the stage. And then the, the movers begin their movements, and a singer starts singing. So it all uh, comes together like as a real-time uh, event. So it's a performance. It's a very mediated performance, but it's a pr live performance. And um, we, uh, yeah, we have... Uh, Q&A session afterwards. That's always our format, uh, including the one that we did at Sarah Lawrence College many years ago. So uh, after that, we talk about uh, our process, and we people, you know, audiences often ask uh, questions about uh, how we uh, came up with a multimedia performance piece out of an ethnographic research, not in a uh, paper form, but in a performance uh, form. So like we talk a lot about like uh, the specificities of the immersive experience, <laughs> especially uh, in a setting where uh, we have audiences. So like how it actually uh, connects us through this artistic practice that uh, makes us to uh, revisit our own experiences, our own personal uh, experiences. So That's great. Thank yeah. you mm -hmm. for sharing that. Is New York City a source of inspiration? If so, how? And if not, why? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I, I work here, but uh, I live in Queens. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, 
and of course uh, I get a lot of inspirations from the city mm-hmm. uh, from like cultural institutions like museums, galleries, film theater, musical theater, you know, all those uh, infrastructure. We talked about the materiality of the culture. So uh, New York City has all of that. And, uh, you know, our students also uh, visit New York City like frequently to get, you know, to draw uh, inspirations uh, from like other artists. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, it's a city that I live in, <laughs> and it's a very uh, diverse city. And as a, a Korean person, like living in Queens, <laughs> it's 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 a very important thing for me to have access to um, Asian food and groceries and all of that. And those are really essential elements of my life. So uh, uh, I don't know if I must say it is an inspiration, but it's a living condition that I need. And uh, that's basically why I am here. Do you feel like you have a community? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I did my PhD in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very different from uh, New York City. Mm -hmm. There were some, uh, yeah, communities that uh, I was able to join, but it wasn't necessarily the community that I have uh, in New York City. So, for example, the... Uh, Urban Mythfist, that community for me, um, we are a group of uh, artists of color coming from uh, all different uh, backgrounds, like uh, DR, Chinese, China, uh, Colombia, Italy, you know, all those different uh, cultural uh, backgrounds that we came together. And uh, this type of community is uh, what I feel most belonged it, and also as a queer person it's also uh, important to see like uh, how I can you know connect with other people not necessarily with the uh, ethnicities or nationalities or race but also with the you know sensibilities that uh, we have like how we you know create our communities relationships and eventually how we create the world for us so um yeah, that's a really important part of my life and also the reason why I live in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Your inter- interdisciplinary projects draw together your research in the contemporary queer culture with a performance theory, Asian American studies, gender and sexuality studies, and film and new media st- uh, studies. What is the arc of gender and sexuality studies? How does it begin, and where is it now? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I started as a filmmaker first, before getting into the uh, academic uh, career. And uh, I began making documentary films uh, with women and queer uh, in South Korea. And it was a queer feminist practice uh, for me to uh, excavate uh, stories of our communities and also the politics surrounding uh, the formation of uh, gender and sexuality in a heteropatriarchal culture. And then uh, after uh, having worked in the field for several years, I decided to uh, engage in the, uh, I, I decided to pursue an academic career because I wanted to write about the politics of representation uh, in uh, filmmaking 
And that was really the beginning. And I didn't really think like tra uh, transnationally about my research. I was like, oh yeah, I worked in Korea and I write about like queer feminist culture uh, production in Korea. But then because uh, I uh, work uh, in the United States, uh, particular like intellectual um, infrastructure that we have, uh, I had to think a lot about like what is really the gender and sexuality in my research. So uh, we, 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 we tend to think that uh, gender, okay, men, women, <laughs> maybe queer, transgender, yeah. as if, you know, that's like a universal uh, category, but it's not. There are always uh, cultural and political and historical specificities in how we understand gender and sexuality. And also uh, it those categories intersect with uh, race and class as well. And so uh, gender and sexuality studies is definitely the f uh, uh, foundational uh, field uh, for me, but uh, it's also very important for me to find how uh, these different uh, categories are intersected with each other and how uh, artistic practices and social movements uh, engage in these uh, uh, intersected uh, areas to forge uh, relationalities across uh, differences, and especially for the minoritarian subjects. This is going right off of your point, which is that when we're children, uh, we learn about the world in mostly binary terms, it seems. Black, white, straight, gay, up, down. Um, but as we age, these binaries hopefully break and become more fluid. In fact, uh, this is just my thought that I'd love to get your reaction to. For someone to mature into a well-adjusted adulthood, their mind must be open to plurality and the interdisciplinary. Uh, without that openness, they'll feel isolated and turn to anger and even hatred. What do you think about that? Okay, so uh, one thing I realized from interacting with the students yeah. at Sarah Lawrence um, I don't think kids are really falling into the binarism anymore in a way because uh, uh, the world has been changed a little bit. <laughs> 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 and also because of the, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, because of the hard works that, you know, activists have been doing. Yeah. And uh, in my class, uh, especially this semester, I ju I'm, I'm just, I, yeah, I just came out of my classroom, <laughs> and it's a queer uh, trans digital class, and I assigned students to create a profile video uh, to tell um, how they define queerness and transness in their own terms. So uh, they came up with um, beautiful projects, uh, and uh, the uh, one of the common threads uh, that they uh, came up with in their projects was that uh, they understand gender, sexuality, uh, fluid. So um, it doesn't only mean that uh, they feel the liberty uh, in thinking that way, but it it's really about like creating the world that's not uh, trapped into this uh, binary of like men and women, white, black nature, culture, you know, those binarisms, because it not only, like, limits uh, ourselves, but also it actually, it is the very system uh, that uh, produces violences mm -hmm. in 
variety of ways. And so, like, how to debunk or uh, destabilize uh, those binarism is really a central thing in my class, actually. And um, I'm really hoping that, you know, uh, we, we say Sarah Lawrence bubble, but, you know, this is a very special environment where we can really experiment around our thoughts uh, based on the readings, uh, artistic practices, as well as our like personal like upbringings. So we have students coming from everywhere, right? We have students coming from like urban, rural, like we experience these binarisms uh, differently. And uh, what's really important in my uh, pedagogy is uh, for them to find uh, the language. It's not only like the written words, the language, whether it's sonic, visual, or written, the language to um, perceive the word uh, beyond these uh, binarisms. It's, it's a very historical thing. Like, you see, I'm an Asian, I'm an Asian person, and like, what does it mean? Like, the, when we think about the racism, if we think about only like black and white uh, binarism, it doesn't work. It uh, it, it doesn't explain uh, how uh, this country. Uh, has been uh, made up, and uh, it's really important uh, for me to draw like attentions to the historical components of like how uh, race, gender, sexualities have been formulated in the national uh, culture in the U.S. So you really are necessarily a kind of historian. Oh yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Although he, I don't, I'm not sure if historians see me as a historian. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to be a student of history yeah. to understand the present moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. What's unique about Sarah Lawrence students? They're very creative mm -hmm. and also committed. Okay. And so, uh, so far, my experience has been uh, really great. great. Not, not just because I'm doing a podcast interview uh, <laughs> at the college, but uh, I genuinely love the passion that students have about, um, yeah, especially about the interdisciplinary uh, practices, which made who I am. And... Um, yeah, the typical flow of my class is to like read theories, but then I ask students to uh, come up with their uh, responses in creative forms. So it's very multimodal, and I don't think it's possible like everywhere because it has to be done in a small seminar setting where I can give uh, individualized attentions to students' uh, work. And also uh, because of the openness, the culture of openness, uh, as Sarah Lawrence uh, it's possible for me to really explore with the students. Sometimes I don't even have a direction, right? Like, I don't know where we are going, but let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and students respond well to that. It's not like, oh, what do we do? Yeah, I, I've never had that uh, frustration uh, from students. And yeah, they've been always open to new practices and new like experimental things and also like interdisciplinary uh, practices, not only about like academic disciplines, but also like artistic mediums. Mm -hmm. So I have like creative uh, writing student who's willing to make a video like for the first time in their college life. Mm -hmm. And I have like film students who are interested in doing more uh, writing works. Uh, to make more sense in my class. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what are a few films that helped shape your values, that helped shape you as a person? 
That's a great question, and at the same time, it's a difficult question. (laughs) 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 Because, um, yeah, I'm not, uh, yeah, I I don't consider myself a cinephile in the sense Uh that I follow all the, you know, important, like, genealogies of the films. I don't watch, like, French films, for example, Uh (laughs) which is, like, highly, you know, celebrated in the filmmakers' community. But uh, it's more of, you know, what drew me into the filmmaking is more of the amateurish approach, mm. I would say. So uh, independent mm-hmm. <laughs> films. So uh, I, I'm not interested in like mastering the techniques of the films or um, asking my students to do so. I am more interested in uh, mastering the 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 spirits uh, in the films like really understand to really understand what's going on like uh, in the creator's uh, mind mm. and so and also I am a big fan of documentary films because it's really about the people that we have in our world and like how we uh, make stories in a way uh, that's uh, ethical and political and so. Uh, for me, uh, film is more about like making and how, and also making with others. So making with students and making with other uh, people, and so I cannot really like. That's okay. Tell one film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's totally okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, but your answer was fantastic. Um, in the description of your course, sonic experiments, listening, and queer world making. You raised some interesting questions for potential students. I'd like to ask those questions of you now. Um, so how do we listen to voices unheard? Yeah, so that was my first class <laughs> at Sarah Lawrence College. And it was uh, during the pandemic. So the course was offered online and everyone was like dispersed. Like they were in different locations. And uh, one of the assignments uh, that I gave to students was that uh, try to trying to listen to the land. You know, the sound that we hear from the land is not voice. And I connected this assignment to the land acknowledgement. So I asked students to uh, do some research about the local histories especially uh, about uh, the culture and history of the indigenous people on the land. And so uh, they went out, you know, it was during the pandemic, so they weren't supposed to interact with other human beings anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they went out and did field recordings, like in the nature or in the, well, even in the highways, um, urban environments, uh, to listen to the word that we didn't pay attention to before. So what kind of sound compositions that we can uh, make in order to engage with the uh, history of uh, indigenous people in the United States? So that was my question. And uh, that was one way to engage with the voices unheard. Okay, that's beautiful. How do we engage experiences of pleasure, repression, rage and isolation that lie beyond dominant language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's also related to how to listen to the unheard, right? Okay. And uh, 
So for that regards, uh, I introduced uh, queer reading as a methodology, and so uh, so that students can um, not only listen to the the voice unheard, but also to listen to their inner voice that's not heard yet. And so uh, drawing upon the queer and trans sensibilities, it was a course listed for LGBTQ studies as well. And so drawing upon their own like queer and trans sensibilities, like I asked them to create a remix of the dominant culture like domin like the, like the, the music like the popular music you know mm -hmm. it comes from this dominant infra cultural infrastructure that we have and uh, it's not always um queer and trans friendly no. and in this situation like what kind of music that you want to hear like like queerly mm -hmm. and then uh, i uh, asked them to um read jose muñoz a queer theorist uh, book disidentification. Uh, so disidentification is a, a theoretic, theoretical concept that Jose Munoz came up with when, you know, in reality, when we don't really have access to like queer and trans cultures, we recycle or reappropriate the materials. So let's do it like with actual sound design. Mm -hmm. So that was the direc direction that I took with the students and I grouped them, uh, like I paired them, so that uh, they can work with their um, classmates even in their isolations in the pandemic. So they sent the files back and forth, mixing, remixing, 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 mm -hmm. and then came up with original pieces. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's one way of uh, listening to like, queerness and transness. Um, in the midst of the dominant culture, mm -hmm. and to create new uh, voices or new uh, timbers uh, with their own uh, creative and critical uh, engagements. So it is, and I'm speaking as a cisgendered white man, so maybe I'm, my, my vantage point is what it is, and I have blind spots. Um, as I ask this next question, um, but I, I write, it's very easy to get stuck in one's pleasant bubble um, and forget the, the very real violence that's on the other side of one's beliefs, uh, personalities or practices, um, waiting to attack the marginalized. Um, what practical steps here at SLC can be taken to keep marginalized people safe? That's a really tough question because uh, we meet uh, in classroom like for a limited time, limited amount of time, right? Yeah. So uh, it's impossible for us to protect the students like all time. They have their own like times like at their uh, dorms or their off-campus housings or like in the city. And uh, this kind of protection is not something that they would want anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not interested in that as well. <laughs> but uh, I am invested in creating a safe environment in my class for the students to uh, really address uh, the difficult issues like in their life and also in the readings and in the artistic practices um, that we explore in class. 
And I really like how people transitioned from uh, creating a safe environment to a brave environment. So, uh, you know, when we try to protect, we tend to like block, block them from like looking at it or listening to it. Mm -hmm. And instead of that, we take a courage to listen and to watch. And that takes... Yeah, some courage. Yeah, that's yeah. why we call it a brave um, culture. And uh, I want to have that in my classroom. Bec yeah, partly because the world is not a safe place anyway. And uh, even if uh, we do our best in our classroom, and let's say everything went really well, and all the students satisfied with the, you know, the, the degree of the protection that they had in my class. But what happens if they step outside of the Sarah Lawrence Bowl? So uh, what I do is to uh, help them to engage with the difficult topics, whether uh, it's about gender, uh, sexuality, race, or class, uh, so that they gain you know, languages uh, to deal with these difficult situations um, in their lifetime, like after the college. So uh, gaining the language that explicitly uh, address like how they think and what they think is really essential for me as an educator. At least I want to teach them like how racism works in this society so that they wouldn't blame themselves, like personally, like, oh, I'm not good enough, you know, that kind of uh, rubrics that we have. Or, or, you know, just be angry at the world. That's not the ways that I would like to go with the students. I would like to work with the students uh, to uh, find or fine-tune our languages to deal uh, with our realities. That's great. What do you love about teaching? Hmm. I love teaching. I love those moments when um, students uh, share with me how they had an eye-opening experience in my class. Because <laughs> um, I remember, like in my college years, uh, I had to organize. Uh, my own reading groups or join a reading group so that uh, I can find the languages outside of the classroom. That wasn't available in classroom uh, back in the years when I was in college. And so uh, I would like to offer that in my class. And uh, that's, yeah, that's, you know, when uh, I hear from students that uh, they learned new languages, new perspectives um, from my class. That's one of the most like celebratory moments for me. And also like creating um, moments uh, when they connect with each other. Sometimes it's okay, you know, they like don't care <laughs> about my presence in classroom. Sometimes, you know, it happens like when uh, the conversation gets heated, like, a lot of back and forth, back and forth. And that's really the moment uh, when uh, we have a real uh, conversation. So um, 
it's not always um, comfortable, you know, as I said, like about the brave culture. There could be arguments sometimes. There could be some angers. There could be some sense of um, isolation. But we carry on with that uh, in the class so that we learn to communicate uh, without, uh, without neglecting the difficult issues. So those are the my, my, my favorite moments of teaching. And I love about the teaching because I can be a platform. I don't know. I, I could be a resource for the for for young people to um, yeah dip into their own world and create their own world and really you know move forward with a new community new sense of community and belonging so yeah all right that's great um, my last question for you is do you have any questions for me Oh, I have a lot of questions. Oh, ba really? Basically, because I don't know, like, uh, you know, besides the podcast and uh, yes. faculty spot, like, I don't know, like, what you've been doing and, like, how many years you have been working at oh, the college. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've been working here for eight years, mm. going on nine. I started as an administrative assistant, and that's what I was uh, for at least five of the years that I worked here. Uh, but then uh, Mustafa, our new director, came on board, and I saw it as a good time to introduce the idea of doing a, a podcast for the college, for the library, well, for everyone. Now I'm the cre uh, Library Creative Resources Coordinator, so I, I do th work with the 3D printer um, and the sewing machine in addition to podcasting and faculty spotlights. And this is my first semester doing, like, all of these things simultaneously, um, which is why I was a little bit nervous. <laughs> you asked how I was doing early on before we started, and I was like, I'm a little bit nervous. It's because I got a lot of, you know, a lot of juggling a lot of things mm -hmm. simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as a digital media person myself, you yeah. know, uh, I, yeah, I feel really fortunate to have... Uh, opportunities to work with the librarians here because you know we have a new digital uh, humanities librarian. Yes, we do, Claudia Berger. Claudia Berger, and uh, she actually visited my class to offer a workshop uh, for my students. And oh, that's great! Yeah, they did a wonderful job creating like uh, digital archives in oh, my class. Oh, that's great! And you know the transition that's happening at the library, like we are moving from like book and the print culture to like more multimedia and digital. And so uh, I really appreciate like, your efforts in like 3D printing. <laughs> I, I also sent my class to your friend. Yes, that's yeah, right. 3D printing. And it was, uh, my it was my first class. I was so nervous. I did, I did a terrible <laughs> job. I wish I could have them all over again. <laughs> and I would be like, just pay no attention to that. <laughs> but I was, I was thinking I was just too nervous and not prepared well enough. But I try to get them, uh, get across that this is a good tool. Because the 3D printer is a really cool tool to... To, to make something tangible out of uh, digitally. Um, yeah, it's a good tool. You're welcome to use it whenever you like. Okay. Good <laughs> to know. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs>
If you'd like more from the SLC Library podcast, then go back and listen to one of my other chats with staff and students to tide you over until the next episode. Remember to give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for sharing your time with us. We look forward to doing it again next week.